Welcome to Canine 360. This is Jill. And uh, actually, as you're listening to this, which I pre-recorded for you earlier, I am on an airplane flying to Lexington, Kentucky, and speaking at a major academic conference at the University of Eastern Kentucky uh, on topics related to all the things we talk about on this program. So I will be sharing tomorrow uh, with a slightly different audience, um, academics who will be interested and polite, but they may not be quite as savvy as you are. Uh, no offense to any academics listening out there, but you know what I'm talking about. So I will come back uh, later in the weekend and uh, maybe report back to you on some of the things I learned at this Living with the Animals conference, um, Eastern Kentucky University, this weekend. So what should we talk about today? How about a little bit of context for some of the things that I'll be speaking about Uh things that you've heard here before. And I want to start with a quote from Gary Wilkes, trainer who reasonably popular, I think, on social media, where he pretty much haunts and writes about stuff every day. And he says, tell me what you won't do, and I'll tell you what you can't do. Tell me what you don't know, and I'll tell you what you can't And somebody asked him to elaborate on that a little bit. And he said, I know behavior, not just dogs, but nine different species, including humans. There are commonalities to all of them and there are differences to all of them. They all respond to fundamental principles of behavior. If you recall, that was B.F. Skinner's mantra that watching a pigeon allows you to extrapolate to the entire population of humans and animals on the planet. Hmm, Paint Wilkes a little skeptical. He finds that highly unlikely to be true, even if you examine how pigeons behave in nature. But imagine you decide you're not only going to study how often they do a single behavior, an instinctive behavior that's not common to most species, like pecking things, then decide that you prefer one of the polarities of the behavioral effects, positive reinforcement, Now go back and consider the veracity of the earlier claims. Tell me what you don't do, won't do, and I'll tell you what you can't do. Tell me what you don't know, and I'll tell you what you can't know. So Wilkes um, is critiquing Skinner quite a bit, uh, and he's pretty knowledgeable about it. Um, He will frequently identify the fact that B.F. Skinner opposed the use of all forms of punishment, that he advocated only positive ways of shaping or changing behavior of any kind, and he didn't objectively study aversive control, having proposed that it wasn't necessary to know how it really works because he, quote, preferred positive ways of changing behavior um, and... That's a tell me what you won't do and I'll tell you what you can't do kind of thing, at least according to Wilkes. Um, And so here's what Skinner couldn't do. He couldn't stop behaviors or create 
lasting inhibitions. And that's probably the chief reason why his work is so is of such limited value to dog trainers because the first thing that most dog owners ask of us is how do I make something stop? Well, in a scientific community where there is no um, framework for stopping behaviors or creating lasting behavioral inhibition, then we hit the limits of what Skinner can say or share with us. Um, He preferred a process that takes constant maintenance called positive reinforcement and he opposed the behavioral effect that could stop, reduce, or inhibit behaviors and there's our tell me what you don't know and I'll tell you what you can't know kind of position, I guess. Um, For animal trainers, the lineage is Skinner to Breland. Keller Breland was uh, Skinner's graduate student, Keller and Marion Breland. And then from Breland, we have people like Ken Norris. And by the 1980s, we have lots and lots of marine mammal trainers. And in the 90s, behavioral experts at zoos and the positive modern, quote, dog trainer. And they all generally have the same blind spot. If you're wondering why that's important, we can say this. Uh, Well, let's say it how Wilkes would say it. Wilkes would say it that anyone who comes from the Skinner tradition is afraid of behavior. I know that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Afraid of behavior. They are afraid of normal reactions like frustration, anger, confusion, and any aspect of training or behavioral influence that causes these emotional reactions is eliminated from their programs. According to Wilkes, it's all about nice, passive, calm, shaping. It's all about simple little tiny improvements and never letting the animal sense difficulty. In other words, it's not at all natural, right? None of us have ever experienced any difficulty learning something. Did you ever fall off your bike, right? Learning how to run it, have a little fender bender, learning how to drive, Er, frustration, anger, confusion. Skinner's Problem or the problem of the Skinner legacy is it's not functional. It can't meet behavior on its own terms, and that includes the full repertoire of the animal being trained. Tell me what you won't do, and I'll tell you what you can't do. Cut out half of life's evolutionary responses, and you can't have a mentally healthy animal, including the human animal. Um... Wilkes says that's why they're afraid of behavior. They can't stop it. They can't remove it. If something creeps into an animal's repertoire, it will be there forever. Animal acts will sell a talking parrot if it learns bad words. That's the example he provides. Um, And it's why many agility dogs are retired if they show aggression. It's why marine mammal trainers use buckets and buckets of food to keep their animals from getting frustrated in their little concrete gulags when the trainers ask them to do difficult things. Wilkes talks about uh, giving a seminar with Bob and Marion Bailey at the San Diego Zoo 
uh, and there was a head trainer from SeaWorld who told him they never go beyond VR4, which is a fancy term for saying they never reinforce less than an average of every four behaviors. Why would that be? According to Wilkes, because we can't get Shemu ticked off, can we? He might hurt somebody. So what won't they do? They won't allow the animal to behave normally. That means they can't control normal behavior. That's why the animals are not mentally healthy. And if you've seen the documentary Blackfish, you know exactly what uh, I'm, I'm talking about here. Wilk says back when he first started training dogs, confirmational handlers were scoffed at because they don't really teach much of anything. The argument said they simply shove liver in the dog's mouth to make them stand pretty. Ironically, all those competition dog sports have now copied the same preference. Confirmation handlers are afraid of aversive control because they think it destroys attitude and obedience, agility, and other working handlers have gone on to unwittingly limit what they can do by adopting the same fears. Who conceived them to oppose aversive control? According to Gary Wilkes, people who know nothing about it. Tell me what you don't know and I'll tell you what you can't know. The blind leading the blind, he says. He goes on to say some other things that are pretty condemning. And for the most part, my experience uh, replicates his at all, his uh, as well. For example, my San Francisco Bay Area friends, literally where the whole puppy play group class approach began always look at me with pity when I roll my eyes or refuse to um, endorse these puppy play group classes and dog parks or shake my head in frustration at the now nine month old delinquent adolescent dog who doesn't come when he's called barks hysterically when he sees other dogs and drags his owner around like an Iditarod dog pulling in harness. And the best that the observers or owners can say is, he just loves other dogs. Right before they ask me how they can teach their dogs to pay attention to them, now that the owners are sick and tired of the dogs doing stuff they've been encouraged to do for their entire lives. It is not a coincidence that sales of the, quote, no-pull, quote, harness and other management equipment tracks neatly with the insistence on puppy playgroups and dog parks. Adding to the fallout, as we've said before, is the marketing mix from the big box pet supply stores, which has altered the conceptual metaphor, right? When we replace owner with pet parent, dog with fur kid, training is replaced by social experiences. And we don't, from there, understand the rich and intricate history, intricate, intricate, there we go, history of dogs and humans. But we do have in our hand a shopping list that encourages and sustains pet parent as indulgent spectator. Most of what's on that list, as we have said before, are goods and services that no dog is ever actually needed, starting with clothing, right, and daycare. So the bit about the spectator is particularly awful, though, 
because it portends a kind of hands-off ethic that says that meddling with animals is somehow a sign of human corruption. So what's left but to let them be dogs as though they could figure that out by themselves? And also there's the whole parent mistake. Owners who are still seeing an adorable baby when everyone else sees an obnoxious adolescent or an out-of-control adult. That busy people somehow think that if they do the puppy play class, they've done what they need to do and everything will be all right because their dogs are friendly and it therefore doesn't matter that they don't come when they're called. Uh, Most puppy class enterprises don't go beyond two or three levels of puppy training and often have very little effective measures directed at unruly adolescent large dogs or even hyper-excitable little dogs who need more information about their behavior options than the treat-no-treat equation. Skills need to come first, right? I mean, for trainers, business acumen is is important to survival, but not at the cost of the public trust, which is what I see happening sometimes even out here in in the Midwest. Conceptualizing dogs as children can lessen the human-animal distinction, which can be important in some instances, but it generally causes problems for the dog and their place in society. In my work with dogs and owners, I am often called out to solve a behavior problem in a home where the dog has never had any formal obedience training at all. No puppy kindergarten, no basic or beginner's class, And like the wayward Marley, remember Marley in that wretched book and movie, these owners are passive spectators to their dog's behavior. They are spectators who think they're participants. Like everybody who goes to Memorial Stadium, right? But their dogs are essentially furry kids, lovable members of the family, even or especially at their most un disciplined and incorrigible. In the movie, the the couple sits by with a kind of bemused helplessness as down through the years, the yellow lab they lovingly describe as the world's worst dog chews up multiple sofas, terrorizes a pet sitter, swallows a necklace, eliminates wherever he pleases, goes berserk during thunderstorms, and so on. But you know, John Katz, the author, he noted in a book called The New Work of Dogs that this passive attitude to dog ownership is widespread. And it's a chief reason why the world is full of dogs who bark all night or attack small children, bite the mail carrier, um, maybe hump your house guest's leg, and spawn litigation that helps drive up insurance costs for the rest of us, too. Often these dogs view only view a human being as the bearer of a food dish and the occasional giver of affection, a kiss or a pat on the head. Some of them, when they are exposed to humans who actually want to interact with them, to touch them and speak with them and be close, it can be overwhelming. They get confused. They can give off a number of mixed messages. And that's the trait that gets them labeled as unpredictable. In almost every case like that that I have dealt with, the dog is a pet who has lived in the house 
and who suffered his fate due to some transgression of house rules that he was never taught in the first place. These dogs who are passively observed by owner as spectator can be strangers to normal human contact, good or bad. Their training tends to take longer than the dog who's been actively and uh, usually by human standards actually abusively treated. But we listen to the stories, right? Because allowing folks to tell their stories is important because people need to tell them. But typically when I get a frantic call describing a dog who is a killer, leaping, jumping, snarling, growling, teeth bared, biting, tearing clothes, menacing children, climbing on furniture, grabbing family members by the shirt tails or pant cuffs, stalking another dog or the cat, shredding grandma's fingers, and so on, I frequently arrive to find a perfectly normal, perfectly charming, entirely untrained and unmanaged 12-week-old maybe boxer puppy, right? Generally, the family has no clue what training is or what it is for or why it's important, nor any notion of management, restriction, crate training, aloneness training. They bought the puppy, brought him home, dropped him in the middle of the living room floor, and having spent the previous three or four weeks staring at him and guessing about why he's doing what he's doing, by the time they call me, they're pretty committed to the efficacy and the explanatory power of the story they've created around the dog. And that will be the hardest part, right, is interrogating that story. I've come to be a great deal more cautious about the call that identifies the dog in the household as the sweetest, calmest, most gentle creature who brings the newspaper, fetches a ball, drives the carpool, helps the kids with their homework, and invented the internet. (laughs) Because when I arrive in that home, I will find a dog, often, who has put every single member of the household in the emergency room. And that's no kidding. So... Here's what I'll share at the conference, the conference I'm on my way to. Whose story of confusion takes precedence here? This is kind of an academic perspective, but do we say it's the medieval, I believe, the Cartesian, I think, the romantic, I feel, the existential, I choose, or the Freudian, I dream, right? Because before the Vienna Circle exported logical positivism to Harvard and Professor Skinner forced that sterile epistemology into behaviorism, native-born thinkers right here in America had begun developing a powerful philosophical theory that dominated American popular culture until recent years when our national psyche and government were captured by eschatological theology. And that was called pragmatism. You can Google pragmatism if you want to know what I'm talking about. Pragmatism's advocates included William James, John Dewey, and Josiah Royce. 
Richard Rorty, R-O-R-T-Y, is perhaps the most prominent modern contemporary pragmatist. One of pragmatism's original theses is that the best test of any theory is, does it work? Does it work? Is it pragmatic? Is it practical? Does the theory have consequences which can be seen and judged by other people in the real world? Writer and sheepdog trainer Donald McCaig once told me that sheepdoggers are pragmatists. If you are thinking to buy a trained dog, see it work before you reach for your wallet. Also, if you want to buy a pup you intend to become a sheepdog, watch its parents work. I think hunters know this too, right? And finally, Donald wrote, never pay good money to any sheepdog trainer who hasn't at least won one open sheepdog trial. Does it work? McKaig said, these simple theories will help any beginner who knows nothing of sheepdog work, sheepdogs, or even sheep to buy and train a useful dog. I think hunters know this as well. I don't think there's any kind of serious or recreational hunter who would buy a dog that wasn't out of working parents who were demonstrated in the field. Genetics matters, right? It would be silly to presume otherwise. But people read dog behavior stories and people hear dog behavior stories and people tell dog behavior stories. And stories are the way human beings learn best. And author Wendy Martin says, we are the stories we tell. So stories are one of the most powerful ways we make sense of our dogs. And by telling stories, we learn who we are as owners, as veterinary clients, right? as neighbors. We learn why we're here, how we came to be here and what we value most and how we see the world with dogs in it. Right. So let's end with this. Veterinarians, dog trainers, owners, lawyers, and politicians, <laughs> neighbors, community members must together tell the story of dog behavior. And in doing so, we must attempt to describe and create the circumstances that support a pragmatic, viable, realistic, and generally lawful lifestyle for our dogs and our human families. The feature of this story should include an emphasis on agency and decision-making, and the story should be individualized and accountable. It absolutely should be values-based, but it should emphasize active training goals for owner and dog as a strategy to address and influence a range of normal canine behaviors rather than deceleration goals to decrease behavior, quote, problems. Right? When we need to know what a trained dog looks like. What's the difference between behavioral control and significant and lasting behavioral change? How do we build the infrastructure for providing these services in ways that allow for the measurement of success? What indicators will be used to see progress? How is that progress communicated? In other words, even if we have an idiosyncratic sense of what a behaved dog looks like, how does he act? And how do we know? 
right? How do we know? So that's some of the stuff that I'll be sharing at the conference. Uh, all things that are familiar and understood by those of us here, by you here listening. Our little canine 360 community, right? We know together that effective training requires we limit the amount of information the dog gets. Um, we try to create signals or cues that limit the dog's focus by teaching a unique format, uh, including a clear end of behavior signal. And then we look for, create, cultivate, seek out opportunities to help the dog generalize those skills across contexts so that your well-behaved dog will sit in your kitchen, in your family room, in your driveway, in the park, in the veterinary clinic, and on the patio, at the restaurant, the coffee house, the wine pub, the brew pub, all those places that we'd like to be able to take our dogs to which are much more fun and enjoyable for everybody, including non-dog owners, when uh, everybody knows how to conduct themselves in shared public space, right? That's the dog you don't have to make excuses for, the one you can take anywhere with you, and that should be the goal um, of any training project. So we'll see. We'll see what the uh, fine folks at the Living with Animals conference. Think about all that because they're going to primarily be theorists, not pragmatists, not uh, necessarily interested in does it work or even how does it work, um, but rather Here's an explanation for how it's supposed to work. And I think where we run into disagreements, they and I, is that dogs, like small children, don't read theory. They don't care about it. They are just busy being themselves, right? And dealing with that living, breathing entity is what we know we have to do as dog owners and as parents. Um, and the theory might be helpful once in a while, but not always. So we'll see. We'll see. I'll come back and let you know what, how everything is received. And in the meantime, I'm going to slide out of here. The uh, celebration is up next. We are glad you're here. Always, always with us on K9360 who lives happily on the station we call KZUM, KZUM 89.3, KZUM HD, the coolest radio station in the world. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week. <laughs>